G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. It's time for another dive into Genesis 2 on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. And we've got an interesting question for Tim after that. But first, how good was last week's special episode? Yeah, last week was awesome. I got to chat with Doug Overmeyer from CSC Ministries, and that was such a good discussion. Really the definition of great fellowship too. I'm going to make sure we get Doug back on the show later on. Uh, also, I had an interview with Derek Gilbert, which uh, went up on his program, uh, View from the Bunker. And, uh, yeah, that aired last weekend. That was received pretty well. Got some good feedback. Uh, so thank you to those people who uh, dropped me a line, got in touch, uh, started following us on the socials, and uh, hopefully you're uh, picking up here and uh, catching us on the podcast. Or maybe uh, maybe you won't hear this until you've binged all of season one and got up to date with season two. So welcome back after all that time. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, awesome, exciting opportunities, and it's good that there's like a, a network and a, a brotherhood and sisterhood out there, and it's very refreshing to, uh, you know, catch up with other believers and uh, encourage one another and build each other up. So, uh, yeah, thank you, Tim, and uh, thank you for everyone getting involved. Yeah, it is really good. Speaking of building each other up, we're going to get back into Genesis 2, as you mentioned, Chris, and we're about to learn that the man in our text needs some help, and that's going to require that God build something to give him strength. Our reading for today is Genesis 2, and verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So we were talking before about the idea in this text that God is getting ready to leave the man in charge. We had this connotation coming through as he was put in the garden as if to say that he was left there. Not that God would abandon him, but to give him a degree of autonomy. And of course, he gives the man his charge to take care of this garden, to tend it and keep it. And we talk in some detail about what that means. And God gave the man the whirlwind tour of the garden and told him that he was free to enjoy the benefits of everything except for the one particular tree known as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we talked before about how that is indicative of putting oneself in a position of judgment. In other words, God said to the man, sit anywhere you like, but don't sit in my seat. You can do anything for love, but you can't do that. Rest in peace, mighty meatloaf. The mighty meatloaf. There will never be another one. We covered the warning that the man was given, the consequence of taking that fruit, which was an immediate judgment against the man for taking judgment into his own hands, followed by the logical outworking of his loss of functionality as God's representative, namely death. And when I talked about that, I made the point that the New Testament theology deriving from this text does not eliminate the concept of animal death before the entrance of sin into the world. And so we ought to consider that the natural world and the animal kingdom functioned back then just the same as it does now. You don't really think that lions were happy eating lettuce, do you? Is anyone happy eating lettuce? Um, but yes, like how does fungus grow without decaying plants to feed on? If nothing dies, how do the nutrients get returned to the soil? You know, what is the sound of one hand clapping, chicken, egg, etc., etc.? 
Well, we'll get back to the animals before long, and pretty soon we're going to find out what it's like for the man to have only one hand, so I guess we can ask him later. But for the moment, we're going to focus on the next thing that God says to this man after putting him in charge, and this seems to be a final thought before God moves on to the work of creation that continues with the animals. Yeah, that's right, I said creation. Most of the language in this verse that we're studying today is fairly straightforward, so I'm not going to spend a great deal of time creeping through it word by word, but there's a core idea introduced here that we really do need to focus on. It's a little surprising, really, as we go through the text as a reader. We read Genesis 1 and everything is good, and if anything's not good, it's just not mentioned. So we had examples like the great sea creatures and the expanse of the sky itself, which were not proclaimed as being good. But there was no statement made to actually declare that there was anything not good about their creation. And if you missed that, you can go back to season one and listen through our cosmology episodes for some interesting insights into the spiritual world that came out of analysis of Genesis 1. So when God says it is not good for the man to be alone, that kind of makes us pause and think, you know, what do you mean? I thought God created everything good. So then how is it that in all this good creation, there could be anything that is not good? Hmm? Well, I would suggest that in answer to that question, we should be mindful of the place where the man came from because God took him from outside of the garden and we can be confident that there were no other humans present in this sacred space. So the man truly is alone in this situation because there's no other person with whom he can identify, whether we're thinking in relational terms or ontological terms. So why is that not good? Well, sometimes I feel like it's hard to explain these things to people because of their preconceived ideas of what goodness means. Because if we're going to insist that goodness equals perfection and there cannot be any lack of anything and there cannot be any need of anything, then we don't really know what to do with the clear statement of God here who was saying plainly that something is not good. I think it's about time that we acknowledge that perfection as some kind of an ideal is not in the author's mind here. And it makes sense because God has work for this man to do. If we're really going to push the point and talk about perfection, wouldn't we agree that there should be nothing to do? That everything should be already ordered the way God wants it? I think what we need to recognise when making the distinction between something being made good and something being made perfect is that just because God, by definition, is perfect, that doesn't mean everything he does needs to meet our personal standard of perfection. What we think is perfect isn't necessarily what God thinks is perfect, and we still haven't even addressed the fact that God doesn't say is perfect. There's a word for perfect. It's not being used in these early chapters. Mm, And the other thought, I guess, is that maybe God is not making things perfect. Yeah, maybe that's intentional. And and maybe that's okay because it doesn't diminish God to have him make something with room for improvement. Is God less good if he makes things a certain way and then decides to work on them later? This is one of the problems that fundamentalists have when approaching the concept of the creation in Genesis 1. Somehow God is not God if it takes him more than a week to make the earth. It doesn't seem to occur to them that God could have made the earth in one second. So the fact that it takes him a whole week, does that make him a lesser God? Of course not. Remember that we said before, the point of taking a week to do the work of creation was to model for humanity the idea of the working week and Sabbath rest. It's not about how long it takes for God to do things. So if God takes longer than seven days to put the earth in order, that doesn't mean anything with regard to his sovereign nature and his perfect power and wisdom. God is God, and the number one proof of that is that he does things the way he wants them done, and he will take the time that he wants to take, and he will involve whomever he wants to involve to finish his work. And that's why you as a Christian have a job to do, and you don't get to just sit around all day and say, well, Jesus did everything, so I don't have to. The whole point of this story in the garden is to show that God has work for the man, and by extension, all of us, 
to do. Listen up, fellow single people. What is it that this man needs exactly? Well, I'm going to argue that it's not companionship and it's not the need to reproduce, although since that is front of mind for many people reading the scriptures, I can understand why that might seem a natural assumption, especially if you think that this man is the only human in existence. It should be clear enough from what we've already studied concerning the origins of this man that God would have absolutely no trouble in providing for him not only a partner but a multitude of people for companionship or assistance. So you're saying it's not Adam's job to save the human race by having as many babies as possible? Well, I mean, we already talked about how this man was selected from the vast multitude of an enormous population of individuals just like him. And the text communicates that idea by telling us that he was formed, dust from the ground. You know what you find when there's one speck of dust? Plenty more dust, that's what you find. That wasn't just some attempt at being profound when I talked about the man being singled out from a vast multitude that are just like him that there was nothing special and unique about him because he was just like everybody else. I didn't say that just to make you feel like he weren't special. There literally was a human population already in existence outside of the garden. And if God wanted the man to simply reproduce for the sake of getting the numbers up in the garden, then he could have simply brought more people in. I feel like I have to keep saying this week after week, but this really isn't about sex. As if ancient people needed to explain to them or, you know, how or why mankind reproduces. It should be fairly obvious from the text that the primary motivation behind what God is saying here is that there's a lot of work to be done. And this man is, as the text states, alone. This is too much for him. He's got a lot more on his plate than he can handle by himself. Our focus is going to be on how God plans to address this need that the man has and to fix what is not good. But we need to be careful that we do not conflate the man's need with the thing that God said was not good. Because what is not good is that this man is alone. It doesn't say that it was not good that the man needed help. And that's really important. We are relational beings. We are designed to work together. And that's the pattern that we see from God himself, who created the man in order that we might work together with God so that he might accomplish his purposes through us. We're made to work together. And that's why being alone is not good. It isn't needing help that's not good. It's being alone. Because you need help. So help is the key word there, and there's really nothing particularly ambiguous about the term in the Hebrew. I actually looked at a wide variety of translations on this verse to see if anyone would render it any differently. And there was one thing that I liked about the Net Bible, but it wasn't their choice of word for helper that I liked, because they chose companion rather than helper. And anyone who's got a lot of work to do knows that the last thing you need is a companion while you're working. Like, yeah, that's great. Thanks for hanging around and offering a bit of chit-chat, but uh, I've got work to do. Can you uh, get out of the way? Pretty much every version you care to mention will go with helper as their translation choice. One aspect of the meaning of this term that is poorly reflected in the word helper is that it lacks the sense of being an ally in battle that you will find associated with this phrase in other texts like in the Psalms. So there's a sense that the man and his ally are in battle together. Or, at the very least, they're in unfamiliar territory and relying on one another for protection. And it's this idea of protecting or keeping one another as allies that prompted Robert Alter to render it as sustainer rather than helper in his version. I can see what he was going for, but I think it's a bit clumsy and doesn't necessarily convey what he's going for. He wants to say that the term helper sounds like an auxiliary function or something additional, an extra hand, maybe even superfluous. 
And so he doesn't want to go with helper because it makes the helper sound like less than the man or lower in status or function. But as I look at Alter's translation, it appears to me that in an effort to balance the connotations of the term helper in his mind, he has in fact tipped the scales the other way. And now it seems that the man cannot exist without his significant other who sustains him. So as I say, most translations will go with helper. And I think that's okay as long as the associated term with it is translated correctly. And this was where the net Bible came into its own was actually really good because rather than just say fit or suitable for him, it says that corresponds to him. This is like the mirror image of the man. This is the same kind. This is someone that matches him, not just on the species level, but someone who can do the work just as well as he can. It's functional. There's an aspect of an opposite perspective here as well. So it's not an identical helper, an equal and opposite helper. But when I say opposite, I'm not talking about opposition. The helper is not a hindrance. I hope people can appreciate by now after seeing the way that I work through the text that this isn't me trying to get politically correct here and it's not me rebelling against my complementarian upbringing. This is coming from the text. The words that God speaks here tell us that he's looking for someone to help this man, not just to be an accompaniment or to make him look good or to greet him at the door and say, hi, honey, how was your day? This isn't the person whose sole function is to produce more small people and look after them while the man goes to work. God knows that the man needs a helper who corresponds to him, somebody who is equal to him on a functional level. He requires a helper because there are things he can't do. He requires a helper who can do those things, and in his turn, he will help his helper. Because this is not an unequal equation. Between this man and his helper, there is an exact correspondence. It's a mirror image. There is a place for gender roles, but the intent of this text is that the man and his helper will share the work equally. And that goes beyond merely the function of what is to be done and applies equally to the status of those commissioned to do the work. Because the man's helper who corresponds to him is going to bear the image of God as well. Getting back to that image of the helper as an ally, we're reminded that the man is in need of someone to help him in the event that he should need some backup. But will the humans learn how to help each other before they need each other's help? Oh, to be continued. I love a good cliffhanger. Well, let's leave it there and get into the Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in the Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website at giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers@outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. And this question comes from an online discussion group Wheel and Deals asks, <laughs> why were the sons of God given that name? The same as Jesus, who was also the son of God. Who were these sons of God? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's a really good question to be asking because you can head off a lot of later misconceptions by getting to the root of the issue. Before anyone can really talk about the Nephilim, the giants, the demons, whatever else comes after, we really need to address that fundamental question, who were the sons of God? So naturally, the text that we're starting from is Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. 
Here in this text, we find the phrase, the sons of God, in both verse 2 and verse 4. I go into this a lot more detail in my book, so I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on it here. But for the sake of this question, we'll just go through it quickly. You'll also find reference to the sons of God in Deuteronomy 32, Job chapters 1 and 2 and 38, and Psalm 82 and others. In each of these occurrences, the reference is to divine beings, which means that they are of the class of the gods. They are referred to as Elohim, but they are less than God, the lesser Elohim, hence the designation sons of God. You will find that throughout scripture from cover to cover, the term sons of God is always applied to entities that are created explicitly by God, whether it be used of divine beings, as I've just mentioned, or the nation of Israel, as we see in examples like Hosea chapter 11, or believers in Christ in the New Testament, for example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, or the scriptural first man, Adam, according to Luke 3. In every case, we're talking about entities, whether individual or groups, that are created personally by God. They're created in the first instance, or made into a new creation by the Lord himself. Another common thread that we find in biblical theology regarding the sons of God is that the sons of God are supposed to be co-rulers under God. So where we see that happening is in the divine realm, and when we look at the human realm, we see people who are working toward being in that position eschatologically, having lost it at the fall of man in Genesis 3. And their hope is that they'll have that status restored by maintaining faithfulness and allegiance to God in their earthly life. So having run through that just quickly, there are a few things that we've already learned about who these sons of God are. Sons of God are always created by God directly, and they're always created for the purpose of sharing dominion over the rest of creation with the Lord God. Ultimately, all of the sons of God that we read about in Scripture fall away from doing this perfectly, with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is different. Yeah, now having mentioned Jesus, I need to add a caveat to what I said earlier, because Jesus is the exception to rule, uh, not only in his perfection, but in the fact that he is uncreated there is strong evidence to suggest that we should be reading the phrase only begotten son with reference to Jesus, more like unique and preeminent son, placing stress on his priority and his uniqueness as being in a category of his own. So if Jesus is God himself, then why call him the son of God, given that we already have all these other identities that are also called sons of God? Isn't that a bit ambiguous? Well, as I often say on this podcast, we need to remember that we're in the ancient Near East. And it's a functional worldview, which means that everything is defined by the purpose that it has and the thing that it does. And the role of a son in the family structure of ancient Near Eastern culture is to represent his father. When a father wants to send a message and communicate his authority as the head of the household, he will send his son to deliver that message. When the son acts on behalf of the father, the father has done it. And you will see that in full effect when you read the sayings of Christ, particularly through the Gospel of John, when Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father. So as we look back at all of the entities referred to as sons of God in Scripture, we find that in every case we have the function and status of representation of God connected to each entity in that context. The difference between the sons of God, as we find them in Genesis 6, for example, and the preeminent son of God in the person of Jesus Christ is not just the distinction of created versus uncreated. In the case of the B'nai Elohim of Genesis 6, we have entities in the class of Elohim, but holding a lesser status than God. Jesus Christ, however, is co-equal with the Father and is of the same essence, so he is not in a lower class than God. So the reason that we can speak of Jesus Christ as the Son of God is not because he is a lesser class of the same kind, 
but instead it's because of his function as the executor of God's will. So this is actually a function unique to him, and it is a different use of sonship terminology in ancient Near Eastern culture. So we're dealing with different usages of the same terminology, and that might seem confusing at first, but we do a similar thing all the time. For example, you might go to a priest and call him father, but he's not your dad. And you might go home and speak to your dad and call him father, but you're not addressing him as a priest. So in that scenario, the word father is applied in two related but very distinct ways. Even if your father is a priest, the way you mean to address him will depend on what capacity he's acting in. There are differences that apply to the usage of sonship terminology between the rebellious sons of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to be careful not to conflate those usages and misunderstand their implications. Now, returning our focus to the non-human or supernatural sons of God, if we want to identify them a little more, we can still find references to them in other texts, both within the Bible and externally. The best way you do that is to look at similar types of entities performing the functions expected of the role, and that is going to expand our vocabulary beyond simply the phrase sons of God, and will get us into other frames of reference that will help us to learn more. So, what do the sons of God do? Well, they send messages under God's authority. We see that in Daniel 4. They play a part in decision-making concerning the affairs of men. You can read about that in 1 Kings 22. They oversee and act to influence the affairs of men in order to carry out the plans of God. We see that in Job 1 and 2. And they have authority over geographical territories and populations. You can see that in Daniel 12. So in this way, they participate in shaping the destiny of individual humans and even entire civilizations. And associated with these functions, we get an overlap of different terms in different contexts. So we have phrases like the host of heaven, the morning stars, the watchers, princes, etc. This combination of terminology and function bears strong resemblance to that of the Anunnaki in Mesopotamian mythology. And that fact is backed up by professional analysis of the term Anunnaki, which is correctly translated as the princely seed, a phrase that correlates exactly with the biblical terminology. But do you know the first thing that somebody is going to say in response to this is, how do you know that that's correctly translated? Because I heard about a guy who got famous writing sci-fi in the 60s, and he said... Yeah, well, we actually have academic material on this, and... Before anyone scoffs at academics, have a think about this. Everything we know in this world comes from trained scientists who test and evaluate everything that we claim is fact. This is no different. Academic scholarship goes through rigorous testing and peer review process, and the professionals who work in the field engage with original source text and spend their time immersed in this work. And they've come to these conclusions after decades of study. They don't just publish their results in science fiction books or short videos on YouTube, they get published in scientific journals. So if you're not looking there, you can't be sure that you're dealing with facts. This is what it takes to find the truth from people who've done the work. But you don't have to take my word for it. You can just look up the research yourself. Here it is. You can look up some papers. One's called Babylonian Groups of Gods, Ijiju and Anunnaku. It's by M.W. Von Soden. We've got another one, the Anuna in the Sumerian Tradition by A. Falkenstein. We've got Ijiju and Anunnaku according to the Akkadian sources by Burkhardt Kynast. And the Ijiju gods in the Old Babylonian period by Wolfram von Soden. So I've just suggested four academic papers that you can find which will demonstrate the point that I'm making here. 
have a look online and you can probably find some more. Unfortunately, most of the best academic material on the topic happens to be done by German scholars. So if you're like me and you don't read German, you need an English translation. And that's where I am indebted to another published scholar who should be well known to this audience. Dr. Michael Heiser has published a small book which features translations of those papers that I just mentioned, along with some helpful notes. And you can buy that online. It's called The Anunnaki Gods According to Ancient Mesopotamian Sources. You can look for that on Amazon and it doesn't cost much. Or you can sit at home smoking weed and watching YouTube, whatever. Anyway, the sons of God are high-ranking entities in the spiritual realm capable of taking on physical form for activities on land. They observe human affairs and report to God on human behaviour. They convene when God calls, discuss ways to achieve God's aims, and then by God's permission they enact his will. They have authority over geographical locations and are responsible to God for how the people under their authority are treated. Are they all bad? We don't know. Aren't they supposed to be in chains somewhere? Yeah, sure, there are a few scriptures inside and outside of the Bible that describe these fallen sons of God as being in chains of some description. The trouble is it's not a literal description. You don't get chains made out of darkness or chains that are eternal, but... Like I say so often, this is about function, not about material. They're not real chains. They're not really in some hole under the ground. This is supposed to describe the limitation of their ability to manifest the glory that they were originally bestowed with by God. I spoke on this podcast recently about how it works with different kinds of bodies and different kinds of glory. So if you go back through our recent episodes, you can get a bit more on that. The sons of God have been stripped of their authority. They've been judged. They've been restrained in a sense, but they're still real. They're still powerful and they are still among us. And as powerful spiritual beings created by God, they are to be respected but not worshipped. If you were listening to last week's episode when I had a conversation with Doug Overmeyer, you would have heard him say that the Bible does not give us instructions to engage with these high-level authorities. We may be in a struggle against them, but not on a personal level. The way to reduce the power and influence of these entities is by influencing the individual humans under their control. And you do that by representing God well to the people around you. All right, that's all we've got time for this week on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. We will see you again next time. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. 
Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Yeah, there's only a couple of weeks left, I think. <laughs> because, um... Sweet noggy. Yeah. Days. What is that home I said to Marge? We're going to get 28 sweet noggy days and the government takes it away from us. Or whatever. Yeah. Yes. Sweet noggy uh, day. Indeed. There's your subtitle for the episode. Sweet noggy days. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, how does fungus grow without decaying pants? To gay pads. <laughs> How does fungus grow without decaying pants? Hmm. <laughs> Stay tuned. We may need Yes, coming up in next week's episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay.